All right. So we'll be in Judges 10. So as we turn there, uh, some, well, we'll read it first, I guess. That would probably be wise. Screw up before I even started. All right. We'll read through verse 16 of chapter 10. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities, called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cayman. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines. The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me, and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. So for some context, um, just to make sure we're all on the same page going to chapter 10, uh, Israel has just um, been delivered from the lawless rule of Abimelech for three years. Uh, God has judged Abimelech and the people of Shechem as Abimelech killed over a thousand people in the town of Shechem, and then he himself was killed. And so as we enter chapter 10, uh, Israel is leaderless and sort of exposed to enemies around them. And so we see that two minor judges arise, uh, Tola and Jair. And they're minor not in the fact that they are uh, insignificant or unimportant just because we don't know much about them. Uh, We see Tola reigned 23 years. Uh, He was from the tribe of Issachar, reigned in Ephraim. And Jair reigned 22 years, a similar number, and he was from the tribe of Gilead, east of the Jordan. Um, And we have this interesting fact that he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys. Um, What that simply means is, is A, he was probably very rich, and and B, he had multiple wives with whom he sired those 
30 sons. But besides that, we don't know much about these two judges, um, besides the fact that it seems like their reign was peaceful and rather positive overall. So what are we supposed to learn from this, uh, this brief sort of intro on, on both of them? Uh, primarily, it's, it's the mercy of God after judgment. We see in verse 1 and 3 that there arose to save Israel, or after him arose. And that harkens back to language earlier in Judges, that, that God raised up Judges to save Israel. And so we see that um, they are oppressed, they are leaderless, and God graciously saves them after judgment. And this really gets into the, the character of God. Um, he is a covenant-keeping God, and though he does judge his people, for their sin, he will not abandon them. He will not fail to uphold his covenant. Though he bruises and though he, he does hide his face temporarily because of his compassion and his steadfast love, he will not do that forever. He will not cast off his people forever. Uh, that being said, um, not one but two ju consecutive judges is not enough to save Israel from their seeming magnetic backsliding towards sin. We read in verse 6, um, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the God of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Uh, there's two things that I, I want to specifically call out here. First is their descent further into sin. So if we hearken back to the beginning of Judges, we remember that Israel disobeyed God by not driving out the people of the land. Um, then, if we move a little bit further, not only did they disobey God, they also started to worship the, the gods of the people of that land, in the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now they've gone one step lower, and they have disobeyed God, worshipped the gods of the land in the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and now worship the gods in the nations around them. And so the second thing is you'll notice that um, geographically, these gods literally surround Israel. So Sidon is in the north, Syria is in the northeast, Ammon and Moab are in the south and the east, and then the Philistines are in the, in the south, directly under Israel. And so they're, they're searching for every possible opportunity to serve a god other than Yahweh. And this really points to the, the cancerous nature of sin. Um, Israel, like the natural man today, um, as we read in Corinthians, that, that they don't want to serve God. They are not able to serve God. They actually love the darkness rather than the light. And though they are called to be God's holy people, a people set apart from the nations around them, de designed to be a light to the nations, to point the nations to God, they actually just end up turning just like the nations around them, just like the nations they were supposed to replace in Canaan and just like the nations surrounding the promised land. And this can serve as, I think, a healthy warning to the church today because likewise, we are called to be a light to the world around us. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And we are called to be a holy people. That being said, culture has a way of wiggling its way into the church. And now there's the obvious examples of sex and power and money, um, immediate red flags are raised, but it is worthwhile to think of maybe more insidious examples. How we use our time, what is our entertainment, um, where do we spend our money, do we value comfort over eternal things? Um, because sin is, is cancerous, like I said, we see that here, and 
we also see that in our own lives. It's like in World War II, when, when the Allies stormed the beach of Normandy and on D-Day, um, they didn't go to just take the beach. They were there to take the continent. And so in the same way, sin wants to take over every area of our life. And if we aren't careful and keep careful watch over our, our, our path and our steps, um, it can very easily take over everything. And we see the, the, the result is there's punishment. Um, the Ammonites and the Philistines oppress the Israelites. Uh, not only the Ammonites come in from the east um, and oppress the people in Gilead, which is east of the Jordan, they actually cross the Jordan to the heart of Israel and oppress the people of Benjamin, um, Judah, the house of Ephraim, really the, the heart of Israel. And so we see that as the grievousness of sin increases, the punishment also increases. Now moving on, we see Israel's first response to this punishment. Uh, we read in verse 10, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now at first, um, it may seem like, oh, this is a, a proper repentant heart. But um, we've seen this, this game played out before in Judges, where when it says Israel cried out to the Lord, more often than not, they are asking for relief from sin rather than truly repenting. They just want the punishment to go away rather than truly changing their behavior. And God sees through that. Um, he says in verse 11, And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. And there is a parallel here between this list and the list of foreign gods we just read in verses 6 and 7. And God is, is drawing a distinction between all of his faithfulness and then Israel's unfaithfulness. So he saved them from the Egyptians, and Israel worshipped foreign gods. He saved them from the Amalekites and defeated them in battle, and Israel worshipped the gods of the nation around them. He saved them from the people of Canaan and utterly destroyed them out of the land, giving Israel peace and prosperity and the land flowing with milk and honey. And they turned their back on him and rejected him. And so we see for, for every act of faithfulness that God has just poured out on Israel, they respond with a rejection of him. When he pours out his blessing, they, they turn their face. And so as a result, there, there is just punishment. He says, therefore, I will save you no more. Um, and not only is it just, it, it's, it's also promised. It's a promised judgment. And so I, I want to turn to Deuteronomy 31. Um, as we turn there, some context is this is, this is before Israel entered the promised land. So Moses is about to cede leadership to Joshua and Israel is going in to take the land. Um, and God is instructing Moses on sort of these last instructions to the people of Israel through Moses. So in Deuteronomy 31, uh, we'll pick up in verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. 
and many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now therefore write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today, before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. And so chapter 32 is the entirety of this song. Um, but in essence, God is giving this song as a, a witness against them. He knows the sin they are going to commit before they even commit it. And this is a reminder to them that, that God has been fair and just in, in warning them of the consequences of their sin. And so it is a just but also promised judgment that hundreds of years before Israel entered the promise, or in Judges 10, uh, this occurs. And while this isn't solely referring to the sins of Israel in Judges 10, the, the connections are, are pretty striking. Um, we see that Israel did whore after the foreign gods. God's anger was kindled. He did hide his face from them. Many evils and troubles came upon them. And then later in the actual song, just like he says in Judges 10, he, he says, go, go to these foreign gods, these fake false idols that you worship, they will save you. Um, and so we have to ask the question, okay, why, why did God do this? And, you know, there's, there's probably a couple different answers, but I think one of the biggest ones um, can be found if you just flip one page in, in verse 39 of chapter 32, near the end of the song. Um, chapter 32, th verse 39, we read, See now that I... Even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And God alone is God. And one of the biggest evils of the idolatry of Israel is they are taking God's glorious attributes and characteristics and assigning them to false gods. They're saying other gods can kill and make alive. Other gods can wound and heal. Other gods can satisfy. Idolatry is so insidious because it's taking what is only God's, being by nature loving and holy and just and forgiving and wrathful and gracious, and the only source for these things, and assigning them to created things, whether created by God or, or man-made creations. Um, and that's why the, the resultant punishment, as they idolize the things of this world more and more is, is more and more severe. And it's why God gave them this warning because idolatry is not, not to be trifled with. It is trying to take glory away from God and assign it to created things. And the easy question after that, um, that might be like a first step is, okay, what are, what are our idols individually or as a church? But I think that's, that's sort of a layup because all of us could come up with a laundry list of idols. I think the real question is, are you crucifying these idols, treating them as seriously as they deserve? Or are you letting them fester and grow and get very, very comfortable um, 
we, we talked earlier about the, the cancerous nature of sin and just how easy it is to let idols fester and become very comfortable. And unless we are killing them, they will slowly take over. Israel didn't wake up one day and go from fully obedient to God to saying, I'm going to worship every single possible false idol I can put my hands on. There was a slow slide towards sin. So just like earlier, we need to keep watch over our path. Look carefully at what we're running at, our affections, our desires, our inclinations, our agenda, our goals, and see, is, is this about God or is this just about the world? Is this just about our idolatry? And because we, we have to treat it seriously. So then to conclude, we see Israel's second response to this uh, statement by God, going back over uh, to Judges 10. In verse 15, um, we read, And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And so it looks like Israel has moved from fake or false repentance to genuine repentance. Um, you'll notice that they, they submit to whatever God seems best. Um, and they also put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Um, true idolatry is always marked, or true repentance, excuse me, is always marked by turning away from sin, attempting to turn away from sin, fighting sin, and turning towards God. And so then God responds. And, and before we, we flush this out, I, I want to make sure we're on the same page with what his response means, as, as it's a little confusing at first. It says, he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Uh, the Hebrew word um, that's translated here as impatient is, is this sort of shortness or, or restlessness. The NASB translates it as, God could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And so what is revealed to us is a God who does not delight in his people's misery. He doesn't enjoy they're suffering, even though in this case it is entirely self-inflicted. He actually delights in the well-being of his people and wants them to flourish and glorify him. Now the caution we need to, to have when, when we realize that is not drawing the connection that Israel's genuine repentance caused or coerced God into acting this way. Otherwise, the quality of our prayer, quality of our repentance, the quality of our time in the word would act as a work to force God to care about us in our misery. No, that's just who God is. It is his, his nature. Um, one commentator said it really succinctly, our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. And so Israel threw the kitchen sink of sin at God. And we haven't completely gotten to the redemption, but God so clearly is, is revealed as a God who cares about his people. And for the sake of his own glory, will not abandon the covenantal commitment he has given them and that he will continue to love them. He will not leave them or forsake them. And that even in judgment, he will be faithful to them. And th this gives us much hope today. Um, because in this life, we will have suffering. And some of it is a result of our sin, a result of our disobedience. And some of it is just by nature of living in a fallen world. 
Um, but Christians alone know that regardless, in the suffering, in the valleys, in the misery, that we serve a God who deeply cares about the hurt that we are experiencing, about the, the realities of sin that we walk through because we are his people. And um, this is most clearly seen in the misery of Jesus on the cross. And before you say, oh, this is just a classic conclusion connecting to Jesus, like this is critically important because the misery of Christ at the cross secures and proves God's care for us in our misery. You know, Isaiah talks about like, like he was oppressed, he was afflicted, he was stricken. He took on the full weight of our sins, the Holy One of God, and he experienced the full weight of God's wrath so that we could be completely secure knowing that whatever we walk through as believers, a sovereign, holy good God cares about us, not because of the genuineness of our repentance, but simply because that's his nature. Um, and so as, as children of God, we walk through, through life um, oppressed, but not hopeless at all because of the character of our God who is impatient over our misery. So I'll pray. Father, um, Thank you that you are unlike anything a human mind could come up with. No human mind could comprehend a God who responds to such evil with such grace. Thank you that you are just and holy and so abundantly kind to your people. Um, Lord, let us not negate grace by refusing to believe who you have revealed yourself to be in your word. A God who cares about his people, does not delight in their suffering. Um, and one day our suffering will be removed and that we can uh, glorify you completely and fully in heaven. We love you. Amen.